Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com. Woodhill Community Center. Have a hand in the heart of the city. Support their mission with your donations at WoodhillCommunityCenter.org. Toyota in Nicholasville Superstore. Online consultants are standing by right now to help you find your next Toyota. Visit ToyotaOnNicholasville.com. Lexus of Lexington, home of the best-selling Lexus IS. Find yours today at LexusOfLexington.com. Introducing the redesigned CatholicSingles.com, featuring new ways that put the spotlight on the person and their faith, not just a profile picture. For the past 20 years, faithful Catholics have used CatholicSingles.com, and the reimagined CatholicSingles.com website is ready to help single Catholics take the next step in sharing meaningful relationships with other faithful Catholics. Remember, CatholicSingles.com, for faith, fellowship, and love. Welcome to the Dignity of Women, where we dig deep into the vocation and dignity of women in the church, in modern times, and as an answer to the call for a new evangelization. I'm your host, Kimberly Cook. Joining me today is Diana Mao. She is the president and co-founder of the NOMI Network, which creates economic opportunities for survivors and women at risk of human trafficking. And Diana co-founded the NOMI Network after a rewarding career in economic development and management consulting. Since its inception, Diana has played an instrumental role in making NOMI Network the catalytic international organization it is today. She is responsible for the strategic direction of the organization since its founding and building NOMI Network's board and strategic partnerships with large corporations, funders, and investors. A 2015 Presidential Leadership Scholar and New York Academy of Medicine Fellow, Mao earned a Bachelor of Arts degree in Business Economics from the University of California, Santa Barbara and a Master of Arts in Public Administration with a specialization in international management from New York University. She received the Pioneer Award from Asian Americans for Equality and New York University Recent Alumni Award for her critical work in conceiving and building NOMI Network to the powerful force it is today in the anti-human trafficking movement. Thank you for being here with us, Diana. Thank you so much, Kimberly. It's such a pleasure and honor to be here with you today. Thanks. So what I want to know first is what is the NOMI Network? Tell us about that and how you were personally called to this cause. Yeah, definitely. That's a great question. Um, So NOMI Network is named after a survivor who's eight years old. I met her in Cambodia back in 2008. And um, when I met her, she was living at an underage shelter where girls as young as five years old were trafficked or sexually exploited. 
And as soon as we arrive, this shelter um, at an undisclosed location near the Thai border, she uh, ran across the playground and greeted my co-founder and I with a warm embrace and smile. And we were surprised because we expected a lot of the girls to be very, um, you know, um, to themselves and really non-engaging. Uh, but she came to us and followed us around as her director gave us a tour of the shelter. And as we learned her story, the more I learned about her story, the more um, just outrage I became, like hearing her exploitation begin at such a young age. She was trafficked by her stepfather and her mother allowed it to happen. And when the shelter um, workers, outreach workers found her, she was caged and, you know, could not speak, um, as well as was biting, you know, and drooling, biting people. And so it was just heartbreaking for my co-founder and I to hear her story. But at the same time, we saw such great hope. Um, fast forward a few years later, she was at this shelter receiving care and nurture and, we thought as we were conceiving the idea of Nomi Network, um, how amazing it would be if we were to share her story, but also her success and her growth and her living up to her full God-given potential and the network behind her, my co-founder and I, um, and eventually my third co-founder, as well as other people in our network enlisted to be her network. And so in 2009, we launched Nomi Network, and now we are um, continuing to grow and add on, as you uh, read my bio, to corporations and um, activists, as well as um, pastors and people in the fashion industry. And so everyone um, that we meet and we come across, you know, once they hear her story, they sign up and they want to be a part of her network and women and girls like Nomi who have suffered just such tragedy in their lives, but have so, so much potential. And when I named um, the organization after Nomi, I really thought of just what it means um, for us to be known, you know, and the idea that God knows us, he knows our most innermost pain and innermost um, desires, um, as well as the innate human um, desire to know um, and be known. And so um, naming Nomi Network after her just made total sense um, because we wanted to tell our story as well as connect the average person living in New York City and the United States to the issue of human trafficking. And I think we hear a lot about human trafficking. We hear that word thrown around a lot, but we're not necessarily sure exactly what it means. Um, for instance, the picture that you just painted of Nomi having been found in a cage, you know, an eight-year-old girl, and this was her stepfather and her mother consenting to her being taken out of the home for this purpose. I think that as Americans, it's almost so foreign for us to think about this kind of thing. When we think about child abuse or anything like that, um, it's, this is just so horrific. And, um, as far as your personal story, despite a wonderful education and many opportunities to personally succeed, it seems that your life was changed by this personal encounter of suffering when you met eight-year-old Nomi. And you had talked about 
earlier on your site that your fellow New York University colleague was offered one of the young daughters of a Cambodian man in a rural village that you had visited um, on a trip that was not in any way related to human trafficking. But those personal encounters that you had kind of changed course. Um, You know, you were kind of going towards this career in economics or maybe medicine or something like that. And then you were willing to kind of give all of that up to focus on pulling these women out of human trafficking and raising awareness. How did you feel that um, others in your life reacted to that family, friends, or um, maybe people that had invested in your education or followed you along? Did they, were they surprised by that shift? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, you know, being in um, New York City and growing up in the United States, I consider myself very, very privileged. And living in New York City, when I had brought this attention, uh, this issue to the attention of my friends, they were excited to join. And, you know, at the time I was still working in business consulting and um, taking on Nomi as my volunteer project. Um, but when I made that shift from volunteer to staff in 2012, um, Sadly, uh, most of my family was not very supportive. Um, I come from a culture, uh, Asian culture, Chinese background, where um, you know career is very important, and in essence, it's an idol. It's the number one idol, I would say, in my family. Where my cousins, um, my uncles and aunts, uh, being you know immigrants from China and from Taiwan, um, living the American dream, but also excelling and Um, You know, they've definitely excelled in their respective fields from doctors to lawyers to um, entrepreneurs. And so um, looking at the not-for-profit sector is not a sector that they are very, um, they don't really understand it. And at the same time, um, they don't see it as sadly a viable career. And so across the board, I would say in many Asian American families, that is a challenge. And so um, even from you know, coming from a family growing up in the faith, um, there's a clear separation, you know, between Sunday as well as, you know, what you do professionally. So um, at the same time, um, I found great encouragement through my own faith and knowing that I've been called to do this for this season of my life. I started Nomi um, at the age of 24. And so now, you know, fast forward, um, 10 years later, it's just, um, actually more than 10 years. (laughs) It's been just an incredible journey of really, um, people around me now seeing, you know, my cousins now seeing, um, the fruit of Nomi, the impact, and they have become more supportive as well. But initially they've, you know, even my cousins, my age expressed, um, disapproval in the early years. I bet. I bet that was a hard shift. And I give you a lot of credit for taking, you know, following your heart, basically, instead of your head and maybe your debt, you know, things like that, realizing that you're not really sure where this is going to lead, as opposed to maybe a medical career or something like that. So I just give you a lot of credit for that. And um, thank you for what you're doing for these women and um, for just raising awareness all across the world. 
And um, I wanted to get to the topic of how common this is, human trafficking, because we talk a lot about father wounds and about over-sexualization of children from early ages, but I can't imagine a father offering his eight-year-old daughter um, to a grown man for money or you know, allowing her to permanently leave the home to enter into this. Um, yet it seems like it in certain countries and in certain areas, this is a lot more common than we know. Yeah, you know, sadly, um, it is very common, especially in rural India. Um, the specific incident that you mentioned was in Cambodia, and that was my first touch point. Um, with human trafficking in 2007 before I met Nomi, the girl. And so in this village, um, you know, this father, you know, I've read cases in graduate school where parents have addictions or gambling problems and sell their children to feed those addictions. But in his case, I really could tell from the desperation in looking into his eyes that he wasn't you know, trying to sell her for financial gain, but really, um, with, you know, seven children, it just was difficult to feed them. And I knew that they were living in a small hut. In fact, we were sitting in his hut when we were interviewing him and that he had no assets and was engaged in low yield farming. Um, and really when we asked about food, he basically had like bowl of rice to feed the children, you know, bowls of rice to feed the children every day. And so that was all that they had to eat. And after we interviewed him, when he offered my male colleague, his youngest daughter, I could tell that it was out of economic desperation and poverty and not necessarily, you know, like he was trying to make money from selling his children, like some of the cases I read about in anti-human trafficking. And so from that point, you know, and working now in 2012 in India for the past few years, intergenerational prostitution is very common in India where families, because there is no other livelihood option in villages where there's no running water or electricity and women are pulled out of school at second grade, third grade, um, men are engaged in semi-skilled labor and, you know, oftentimes not working or working um, seasonally, they have no other alternatives and whole communities uh, because of, you know, disasters. For example, 40 years ago, there was a natural disaster, a flood in the area that we initially started working in. And there is a whole Muslim community that they, their trade, primary trade was being butchers. So they were butchers. And after the flood, they reverted back to intergenerational prostitution. So um, intergenerational prostitution is where families will prostitute their daughters, their wives, um, you know, and their spouses. I mean, their, their daughter-in-laws. So it's, um, you know, it's a really horrific practice, um, you know, and on top of that, there's child marriage, bride burning, and a lot of these norms um, in a context of the caste system, which is still very much in role and play today in India, um, perpetuates this issue. So there are 46 million people 
in slavery today, according to the slavery index, there's uh, 40.6. According to scholar, other scholars, there's 46 million. And half that population of people live in India. So um, besides corruption and lack of rule of law, I would say the caste system and poverty drives those figures. Interesting. And what do the rehabilitation centers for child victims of human trafficking look like? What is the process of recovery and what's the success rate? I know that from your site, um, one of the quotes that you guys had that stuck out to me was, know me, know my story, know my success. Yeah, yeah. And that's, um, that is... That is something I hold fast to every day um, because the women that we've seen um, more so in the empowerment and uh, reintegration phase. So in the journey of a woman and a girl, um, their path to freedom, there are many phases in the recovery from rescue to rehabilitation, which usually consists of counseling, receiving counseling, receiving shelter, um, reintegration, which includes like a vocational skill, a trade, addressing some barriers to work, major barriers to work, and then empowerment, which um, is um, once they've secured a job and they're in essence uh, preventing the next generation from being exploited because in many cases women will have children as well. And so for Nomi, we focus on, oh, and there's prevention. Prevention is before rescue. A lot of anti-trafficking organizations are now focused on prevention because it costs, um, I think the last figure in the U.S., it costs about $40,000 to rehabilitate a person that has been in slavery. And prevention with targeted efforts um, is definitely you know, in the hundreds in terms of per person in serving people and making sure that they're not exploited uh, to begin with. And so we're in the prevention and also empowerment space. Um, but I would say the success rate in, you know, shelters, it depends, really. Um, it depends on the shelter. And there's no, I would say, data across the anti-trafficking community because there are so many really small shelters in these international, you know, rural communities. Um, but I would say, you know, from the U.S. side, um, the success rate is, um, you know, I would say probably about 50, 60 percent, because unfortunately, a lot of times women, when they're not provided a network, will revert back. Um, and some of their initial, you know, um, the ways that the traffickers kept them under control with drugs and, and all types of addictions that they continue to struggle with after they've been liberated is still a huge problem. Um, and so it's not just a short-term fix. And in the U.S., you know, women, to continue to walk with them on their journey, it takes a lot of resources. So unfortunately, there is a lot of recidivism in uh, providing care for women. And in terms of Nomi Shelter, um, where Nomi lives is a shelter run by an organization that is a ministry, and we partner with shelters like Nomi to provide them with empowerment services like training, vocational skill building, um, having them be able to take fashion school courses that we offer 
And so for her, I know that they've been successful at reintegrating girls um, back with families when they do their due diligence on how did, you know, girls like a girl like Nomi end up in the brothel? Were her parents manipulated? Were they lied to? Was she promised a job in Phnom Penh, the capital of Cambodia? And they really thought she was going to go work, you know, as a domestic servant or work in a factory. So then they sent her. Um, So in those cases, often they will be reintegrated eventually with their families. But in the case of Nomi, uh, on top of that, she now has a mental disability. She's uh, 18, 19 now years old this year, I believe. So she, unlike the other girls, uh, will still be at the shelter. So every year when we visit her, she's at the shelter. She's at the long-term care unit. And that's because um, her stepmother or her mother is still with her stepfather. They're still together. And so that, you know, most likely she will not be reintegrated with her family. Um, But that I would say is a success rate in the sense that it's a very tailored holistic approach that the shelter takes in ensuring that the girls are safe and the environment that they enter into after the shelter is a safe and secure environment where they won't be re-exploited in any form. Mm -hmm. And hopefully the community that they have together in living with other women and girls who have had the same experience, hopefully that in a of itself can bring some healing. They're not in an environment where nobody really understands what they've been through. So I'm sure that has some benefits as well. Yeah, absolutely. It does. It builds community. And whenever I visit Nomi Shelter, I really sense it. And there's such healing. Um, You know, the girls will often wash each other's hair Um, they actually, when they wash each other's hair, they don't use a sink. So they shampoo each other's hair in their dormitories. And just really, there's like a strong bond of sisterhood, which is really powerful and beautiful to see. That is very beautiful. And human trafficking is a $150 billion industry existing apparently in every country and enslaving approximately, as you said, 46 million people. So A lot of times when we think of human trafficking, we think of it in places like Cambodia or, you know, these Indian impoverished cultures um, that are very far removed from our own. Is that true? Uh, When you say it's happening in every country, is it here as well in the United States? Is it in neighboring countries? Is it really everywhere? Yeah, it's definitely in the United States. Um, I believe the most recent figures estimated that about 200,000 people are in slavery um, in the U.S. um, who have been trafficked. And so that is, um, you know, I know there's continuous research around data, around figures. There are foreign-born survivors of sex and labor trafficking, those trafficked in the U.S. from, you know, different countries. I've met survivors from Brazil, from North Korea, from China, from uh, Sri Lanka that were trafficked in here with the promise of a marriage, with the promise of a job um, in most cases and end up in just horrific circumstances. I've also met survivors. Uh, Most recently, I met a survivor who um, grew up in Colorado and ended up 
getting into a relationship with someone who was tied with a, a criminal network and then became trafficked at a at, at her during her teenage years and then ended up in New York City, um, but had a real you know her mother um, d- discovered it or she notified her mother and then with law enforcement they got her out of that situation and so in the U S it looks a little different it could be girls like her that you know. Um, ended up in a relationship with someone that's tied to this industry, or it could be someone who's aging out of foster care. That's pretty common. Um, And what's even more common is homeless youth. Likelihood of a homeless youth being approached by pimps and by the trafficking network is extremely high. As soon as they're on the street, within hours, they're solicited for sex. And so... um, it's, um, yeah, there's definitely, I've seen firsthand also, um, trafficking unfold in New York city as well. And so when that, you know, happens, I mean, New York, there are thankfully ways that we can report, um, trafficking as well. Um, there's like a hotline that you can call. There's also law enforcement when it's very serious. Um, for example, if you see someone right in front of your face being trafficked, then, one should call uh, law enforcement because they could take immediate action. By the time you call the hotline, they would have already disappeared. So yeah, those are some ways that the average person can take action. That's good to know. Cause I think that is a common question. What can I do if I suspect something, see something, or, you know, do I just keep my nose out of this because it might not be what it looks like? Or do I just err on the side of caution? Yeah. 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 And- And I want to ask you um, about the pornography tie as a factor in human trafficking. I know that the website Human Trafficking Search cited 80% of survivors report being shown pornography to illustrate sexual acts and, quote unquote, to train these girls. I mean, as you said, eight-year-old girls. Um, And thereby, a lot of them are forced into pornography for they listed three key reasons, the first being psychological control, the second being for financial gain. And the third, as a form of sex trafficking, pornography is considered to be integral to prostitution. Um, Yet pornography, we hear a lot in the United States, it heralded and upheld as a form of freedom of expression, um, even praised by feminists and other groups. Yet it seems like with a lot of the awareness that some of the networks such as yours is bringing forth, um, that tide is changing. People are seeing more of the danger in, in prostitution, in pornography, and how it's tied to some of these areas of human trafficking. Yeah, I would say I agree with you. It is very much um, tied to it because it commodifies women in a way, um, objectifies women and makes it a transactional, um, you know, transactional event. And so with that, I find that, you know, a lot of um, the anti-trafficking community will draw a correlation between pornography and um when they interview pedophiles or when they interview Johns, um, you know, most likely they would have had addictions in these areas. And then it gets to a point where slippery slope, where, you know, now you're, you're buying sex in essence. And so that is one layer. The second is, I would say, 
uh, talking to survivors and also in terms of the porn industry, unfortunately, there are women and girls that are caught in the porn industry that are trafficking survivors or that are being trafficked. So they're being filmed as well as being trafficked in brothels. Um, it's a criminal network. And so with the network, um, it also in many cases fuels the porn industry. Wow. Um, there's so much that could be said there, but Diana, we know that these women, as well as the families who at times feel forced to sell their daughters and, um, relatives and loved ones and the such, um, they all possess an inherent dignity. And, um, as such, you know, we can't turn a blind eye either, whether we're, you know, oceans away or whether it's, you know, a block away from us or whatever the case, um, because of their inherent dignity and because we need to care about the dignity of others. Um, I think the question is, first of all, how can we learn more about the Nomi Network? Where can we find you? And then also, um, what is the Nomi Network doing that we can take part in, such as you have um, something called Buy Her Bag, Not Her Body, which I love. Can you explain what that is and um, how any of us can support your efforts? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for asking that question. Um, we have a website. It's www.nominetwork.org. And on there, um, there are several things that people have done from running races for Nomi to birthday campaigns to also purchasing products. Um, and Buy Her Bag, Not Her Body is a collection of tote bags that we developed. We also have Made for a Better Life, and all of the products are made by some of the women that have gone through our program, our particularly our fashion program in Cambodia. Um, and they are making products, designing products, creating, and really exercising their um, full potential. Um, a lot of women love just using the creativity and sketching bags and um, drawing, you know, vibrant colors. And so we've been able to take some of the designs and then sell it and distribute it on our website, but also in different stores and retail channels in the United States. Um, so that is one way. Also sign up for our listserv. It's on our website to get updates from Nomi. We um, send out quarterly newsletters as well as other opportunities to engage Nomi Network and our mission. That is so wonderful. I love that. And I want to say that I looked through a lot of the, I just got lost in those pages of looking through the bags and the shirts and everything that they made. And it's beautiful. It's high quality. I think you said that you got the materials from New York and then, um, you know, brought them to the women. And I just want to say that I personally will be buying most of my Christmas presents for others from there. So I really was impressed. I love everything that you guys are doing and what you stand for. So I want to thank Diana Mao of the Nomi Network for being here. You can find her at www.nominetwork.org. Thank you so much, Diana. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be on this call. No problem.
In today's prevalent culture, the institution of the family and faith are under attack. With absolute confidence in the grace and power of God, we at Forming Faithful Families, whose primary mission is strengthening families in the faith, have been inspired to put out into the deep, see Luke 5:4, to do our part to turn this tide. Forming Faithful Families, hosted by James Littleton, is a faithful and trustworthy weekly radio program in service to the new evangelization, saturated with scripture and containing teaching, reflections, anecdotes, and encouragement pertaining to our Catholic faith, with a substantial focus on marriage and family life faith formation. Hello, everybody. I am here with Diana Mao, who I just did a great podcast with about her network, the Nomi Network, which is um, a network that creates economic opportunities for survivors and women at risk of human trafficking. And I had so many people over social media that had questions for Diana that I asked if she would do a special question and answer segment. So I am going to get right to asking Diana to answer some of your questions. Thank you so much for doing this, Diana. Of course, my pleasure. Thanks for having me again. <laughs> so our first question is from Tyra, and it's how can we teach our children about human trafficking without scaring them, but on the other hand, making them aware? Yeah, that's a great question. I think... Um, you know, there's a way, um, and it's so important to educate your children, especially now that, you know, there are more cases of children in the U.S. being trafficked as well. Um, you know, the same thing, the way that you would educate a child on not leaving with strangers or just being mindful of their surroundings. Um, and the reason why um, is oftentimes there are several reasons why, but human trafficking is a reason and an important one that um, as children, you know, it's important to share with them the details about, um, you know, even cases that have arised recently of minors being kidnapped and trafficked. Those are things that I believe should be brought to attention with children. I know it's a taboo issue, but um, slavery is defined as being forced or coerced to work without pay. And that work could be labor or that work could be sex trafficking. And in places like India, um, child labor, uh, working in factories, uh, working in cotton mills for no pay is common. And so in the context of slavery, I feel that children should understand and there's a way to do it. Um, comic books. I know there's an organization that you can find comic books about human trafficking. Um, I believe that's a good way to also bring it to the attention of your children. That's great. Yeah, I know that that is tough. Anything like that where you're talking to children, it's difficult to know how to approach that, especially with something like human trafficking, which they're going to unfortunately become aware of at some point in time. Hopefully it will be because it's, um, you know, dying out or something like that, or, or we're doing something about it. But the next question comes from Veronica and it's, are there certain industries or products that we can avoid in order to hurt the human trafficking industry? I know porn is one, but about a year ago, I found out that a certain chocolate was almost 99% made with kidnapped child labor. Yeah. You know, that's a really great question too. Um, unfortunately, there are, um, you know, every product that we own is tainted by forced or child labor. According to the Department of Labor, 68% of raw materials such as cotton, cacao, coffee, 
um, you know, raw materials like brick are tainted. And so if you, you know, kind of statistically look at it, the likelihood of me, you um, purchasing products with tainted labor at some point, whether it's the factory cut and sew or whether it's at the raw materials level is very likely. And so I usually look to um, fair trade companies, fair trade organization or ethical brands, um, you know, like Everlane, like um, also companies like Patagonia have a very robust um, supply chain that is monitored um, in terms of, you know, human rights and their factories are closely monitored and they have policies in place to address it as well. Um, and then, of course, there are anti-trafficking organizations like Nomi Network that also sell products. So there are there are alternatives, but it's very difficult, um, you know, in the mass consumption level to avoid having products that are tainted with some form of trafficking or slavery. That is very unfortunate. And I know that probably a lot of people are aware of that, um, that there's a lot of the things that we uh, purchase that unfortunately are tied or tainted with things that we would not like to be supporting. Um, the next question comes from Tom, and he wants to know what are the best organizations to donate to and how can we take a part in stopping human trafficking? What can the average citizen do? Yeah, I would say there are definitely really great organizations. Um, it depends if you're interested in uh, what part of the intervention. Um, I would caution giving to organizations that say they can do it all um, because most likely they're not going deep. And in the area of human trafficking, it's so important to go deep and not necessarily wide. Uh, wide is important in terms of you know reaching people, but you can't... Uh, it's, it's, it's rare that an organization can provide rescue, rehabilitation, reintegration, empowerment, prevention, all in one. Because um, as an organization like NOMI that only focuses on empowerment as well as um, parts of reintegration and prevention, I know that's very challenging. And we have a very direct approach in job training, skill building, um, and some legal services. And so that is one. And I do have a few organizations um, domestically that I would support um, shelters like Restore, um, the hotline, the national hotline that's run by Polaris and international organizations like Nomi Network, International Justice Mission, um, Justice and Care are really holistic organizations that I know um, from the field level, they are doing the work as well as measuring the impact on the ground as well. So hope that answers your question. But the most important as a donor and supporter is to do your own homework and also research, get to know the organization, perhaps visit some of their programs. Um, I know a few organizations that, including Nomi, that make that opportunity available um, to some of major donors and supporters in their network. I know that's always something that people are cautious about whenever donating is, is this money really being valued in the sense that it's getting to the people that I want it to get to, or is it just lining people's pockets along the way? So I think that is a great question to ask. And thank you for answering that. And I think especially being able to talk to you and getting to know you and know me network directly, um, you know, we can feel comfortable with what you're doing and where it's getting, you know, to these women and everything. 
Um, the next question is from Julie Ann, and she asked, just yesterday I was forwarded a video about an average American woman's close encounter with trafficking in her own neighborhood grocery store parking lot. How common is this, and what sh- defensive strategies should we know for ourselves and our children? Yeah, it's very common. As I mentioned, um, some of the, you know, um, the people um, in terms of their circumstances that are trafficked are those that are promised a job, lured into the United States, and then also homeless youth, those aging out of foster care, um, perhaps girls that don't have a strong father figure and have low self-confidence living in communities um, that are, um, you know, ridden with gangs, poverty, and trafficking as well. So that is very common. And in fact, um, because I've been in the anti-trafficking space, I'm hypersensitive to seeing it and even passing through New York City already in the past few years through the bus um, Penn Station, which has uh, trains that go all over the Northeast, as well as uh, Port Authority, which is a bus terminal. I see it firsthand and I've reported it myself already twice. And this is in the span of, you know, me walking through Penn Station at 6 a.m. So the more that you're aware to the indicators of someone that seems to be held against their will, um, disenfranchised, passing through with someone that clearly doesn't look like their family member and is a minor, um, you will you will see that. And I think for someone to take action, that's really important. And to protect your own children, the first step is to make them aware that this exists and to make them also um, sensitive to uh, what help that they can get if any of you know these circumstances um, happens to your children, that they should be aware of what they can do as well. And, um, you know, kidnappings happen so often in different areas. I hear about it all the time. And um, sadly, there's not enough data that shows what happens you know, after when children are kidnapped, but um, the likelihood of them being caught in the sex industry is highly probable. And hopefully when you do report that, there is a good response and an immediate response from authorities. Um, because that is, you know, it, it's such a quick response time, I would think, before, like you said, they disappear. You know, in the time that you would call a hotline or something, they'd be gone. It'd be impossible to track them down. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's why, you know, when something isn't right, you have to, your children need to be alerted that to follow their gut, you know. And to um, yeah. take action. And Robert asked, can an adult consent to trafficking as far as domestic servant, day labor, or even organ sales? And I'm guessing that maybe he um, is specifying uh, as a way, a means out of poverty. Yeah, you know, I think it's complicated Um, in Asian countries where there's a strong sense of filial piety. um, Girls are expected to be breadwinners and to help pay um, for families that are out of poverty, bring them out of poverty. So with that, there's a lot of pressure and sometimes they 
you know, it is, you know, they willingly sign up to do that because of these pressures that I don't believe, um, you know, girls should carry the weight of providing for their whole family in Thailand, for example. Um, so there's social pressures, there's family pressures, and the United States, I've talked to women that are in the sex industry and they, um, you know, have chosen to be in it. Um, but, you know, the reality is I was speaking on a panel with someone who is from um, the side of signing up to be uh, in the sex industry. And someone in the audience asked her, you know, what do your parents think about you being a call girl? And she started sharing that at a young age, she was molested by a family member. Um, so there was trauma in her in her childhood. And you know, I come from a frame of reference where I don't believe people choose. Um, there are circumstances, but I don't believe as if as a woman, someone just raises her hand to select and one day decides, you know, I want to go sell my body. Um, mm-hmm. So that's my frame of reference. And, and across the board, as I've talked to people, gotten to know people, it seems like there are these exogenous factors that contribute to their decision. That oftentimes mm-hmm. you just see the decision as black and white, but there are so many levels and layers of that decision. Right. And um, Cynthia asked, how closely tied is casual porn usage to fueling human trafficking? And what are the current laws doing or not doing about this? That's a really good question. Um you know, I'm not too familiar with uh, laws in terms of the pornography industry. I do know it's not heavily regulated to my understanding. And that's why there's a lot of movement around raising awareness. Um, you know, whereas human trafficking, there is legislation. It's clear what that is and the ramifications as well as um, the different legislation recently that's been passed and strengthened, but I'm not familiar with the porn industry and I don't believe there is um, strong legislation in protecting girls and women from being exploited in that industry. Right. Or maybe checking their background when they're coming into that industry. I'm not, I'm sure they're probably not doing too much investigative work and finding out where these girls or women have come from on their way in the door to, you know, these films or photo shoots or whatever else. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and it, 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 you don't know, like, you know, who is and who's not, you know, because people aren't like, they don't have a banner over their head saying I'm trafficked. I'm being forced to do this. Right. So, um, across the board because it's not regulated and it is hidden, then it's difficult to delineate like who, who is in essence a slave and being trafficked, but it happens. And there's data around, around that industry and um, women and girls who have um, personal testimonies of being sold for sex, but also being filmed in the porn industry. And that really leads into Mel's question of what can we do to keep an eye out for victims? I think you covered this a little bit in just saying if something doesn't look right, you know, don't be afraid to call. Because I think, again, people are always paranoid if, you know, am I just jumping to conclusions? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, calling, um, for example, a Penn Station, you know, calling the local precinct and finding out, oh, there's actually a precinct even within New York and Penn Station that focuses on minors, to call that one specifically. You know, every city will vary when you have a case. Um, the National Trafficking Hotline number is um, 888-373-788. So that's a national human trafficking hotline where you can report it. You know, if you you know notice that um, your neighbor has a maid who is in essence being controlled and cannot leave freely and, you know, is working late night, you know, and you, you speculate that maybe she's being held against her own will, then that's a case you would call the national human trafficking hotline and they would investigate that. Um, versus someone who's a girl at a train station and you see her with her pimp being taken and being yelled at and being forced to get on a bus or a train, then you would call law enforcement. Right. Okay. We will take three more questions. So the next one comes from Katie. Who or what is the number one provider of these girls? Is it family, kidnapping, drug use? Who is a, I'm sorry, I don't understand the question. Oh, she says, who or what is the number one provider of these girls, I guess, getting into the human trafficking industry? Is it their family? Were they kidnapped? Is it, um, are they funneling through from drug use? Yeah, I, I, I think I understand the question. Um, so in the case, if I'm not, please um, ask me again the question. Um, with the global stats, uh, given poverty, the caste system, and the generational nature of um, sex trafficking for sex trafficking in India. A lot of it is intergenerational and it's by family members. So I would say one out of four are trafficked by family members, women and girls. Um, Mm -hmm. But in the United States, there are so many variables. And so I can't say that there's, there's no data to back up whether or not it's being, they're being kidnapped or whether or not, they um, are, were homeless and are now caught up in a sex ring. There's no data, so I can't say like what percentage in each category, but um, I've provided you uh, with the few categories that are uh, most common in girls in the United States being trafficked. Now they're right, trafficked. and you talked about um, girls that were in the system um, here in the United States and then getting out when they age out. Um, and from working in that myself, I know that a lot of these, you know, the girls that don't have homes and, um, you know, in essence really don't have anywhere to go when they age out of the system. Um, they are very vulnerable to falling into something like this. And I'm sure there's not a lot of data or studies or exact numbers being run on their situations. Yeah, exactly. So Keith asked if you have any opinion about Operation Underground Railroad as an organization. Operation, um, they sound very familiar. Um, I'll have to, I don't recall where they are. Um, Let's see. You know, I've heard of them. Um, I don't have any, you know, red flags about the organization, Um, but I don't know. I, I believe I've spoken to them before, um, but I don't 
I don't, I can't speak um, because we don't work with them currently. I believe they're based in the United States. So yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't have any specific no problem. information we'll have to, or insight. You, um, if you get any feedback, I'll have to, you know, just follow up with that. That's fine. I'm sure you don't know every single organization out there. Um, and then the last one that we'll take is from Rachel and it's how do the survivors heal? Yeah, you know, it's a journey. I would say the biggest in my experience is seeing the power of love, um, the power of acceptance of community be the primary drivers of their healing, of being accepted and loved unconditionally. Um, in our own experience working with women, they've just gained a new sense of self-confidence and worthiness and walking in their identity that has been literally stripped away from them at a young age, being told they're worthless, being told, um, you know, being called awful names, being oppressed and some literally caged. And then after, you know, the path of freedom, um, is difficult and I don't see it happening in isolation. Um, someone that's receiving counseling, it's so important for them to have a mentor, um, you know, and a house mother, you know, a lot of cases they have house mothers that live on site at the shelter. And for us, you know, we have staff and trainers, um, my co-founder who spent expensive time living in India and, um, with that love, I see it really spreading now the women that have graduated our cohorts in 2012 are now sharing. And even one case, uh, a woman by the name of Rashawn, she adopted another survivor's um, baby who the survivor was a teenager. Her name is Rosie. And unfortunately, she um, was not from India. She's from Nepal. So she couldn't handle being a mom, a teenage mom and, and, and left, left India and left her baby. And so Rashawn adopted baby Nomi and she named her baby Nomi. So that's just, you know, in the context of where everyone lives in mud huts and has low to no resources, seeing a woman who's gone through our program, you know, only two years out of our program, adopt another stranger's daughter is just the power of seeing wow. that love, um, you know, the ripple effect of that love. And so I would say, um, the number three, uh, you know, the top three, um, ways that I've seen women heal are through, uh, through those ways, but also the practical, you know, receiving counseling, receiving, um, economic empowerment so that they are self-sufficient, being able to work and see their, the fruit of their work has also been, had a healing component in their journey. That is so beautiful. I love that. I mean, it love is at the root of all healing. Um, and really there's that's what everybody needs who's so hurt and broken. So um, of course, on top of that, you're gonna get the layers of counseling and therapy and all the rest. But um at the root of all that is yes, these women need to be loved and to be told all the things that they haven't been told that they're worth something, that they have value, that they have dignity, that um, they're worth fighting for to have, you know, they have the rest of their life left to live and they can come out of whatever darkness or brokenness that they were, you know, unfortunately led 
into um, by whatever circumstances. So Diana, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to answer some of these questions. And again, you can find Diana at www.nominetwork.org. Thank you, Diana. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Breadbox Media. Find more about us at breadboxmedia.com.